I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Well, please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're starting in verse 12. And before we get into the uh, discussion of what these passages mean, what these verses mean, I just want to read the passage. So 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. It says here, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him, ask, uh, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God. And I'd read on, but we probably won't make it that far. So let's <laughs> let's start here in verse 12. So back to where we, we just started. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. This fiery trial, which might try you, could try you, possibly, probably, but actually it will try them, or it will fry them, so to speak. There's going to be a bad, painful experience coming their way. It's a, it's, a, it's a certainty because it is to try them. And now at this point, the first thing I, I do is I, I, I back up in Peter, First Peter and I go, what was the trial? You know, does the context tell me what the trial was? Like what exactly were they going through? And it seems clear from the context that it had something to do with persecution. It had something to do with suffering for God's glory because everything in the context before it and the context after it is all about this topic. But we don't know any more detail than that. We don't know if they lost their jobs or if they were chased off their land or if they were just called names and, and mocked and pointed at. We don't know the extent of the persecution that they experienced. We just know they did. Now, I think this. I think that sometimes in the scripture, these, these difficulties someone goes through are left vague on purpose so that we can more easily apply it into our lives. Let me give you an example. Paul's thorn in the flesh. There's a lot of debate as to what this was. But I think it's even more significant that we don't know. I don't know what he was experiencing. I don't know if it was an, an eye problem, as some traditions say, or if it was something wrong with his side, or if it was a spiritual thing that he was experiencing. Um, it seems to have been a physical thing. Maybe it was related to his eyes, as he writes about writing large letters. But really, we're just trying to like sort of Sherlock Holmes it here. We don't actually know what was wrong with him. And maybe it's better that way so that we can apply it more easily into the struggles we face. Because otherwise I'm like, well, that only applies in that scenario. But really it's pretty broad. You know, so whatever persecution or whatever suffering we're experiencing for the name of Christ, this applies to that. This passage applies to that. So he tells them when they experience this trial, not to think it's strange. Like, that's a really interesting encouragement. Don't think it's odd. Don't be like, wait, what's happening here? 
prosperity preaching is once again off. Because I think prosperity preaching, and I hate to harp on it, but I'm just going to harp on whatever the Bible harps on. So, The problem with prosperity preaching is it forces me to think it's strange when I fall into various pains and persecutions for my faith in Christ. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm serving the Lord. I'm seeking God. I'm honoring God. I'm doing what's right. And now I'm suffering for it. That doesn't seem right. And it's like, that's right. Because my Bible was closed, but my TV was on. And that was the problem. You know, I need to have this thing open <laughs> and, and check it out myself. Um, that's one of, the, one of the potential dangers of that sort of prosperity preaching. False expectations stumble people big time. You know, if I held out my hand and said, hey, there's a, there's a $1,000 in this hand for you. And you're like, oh my goodness, that's so wonderful. That's going to help me with the car payment. It's going to help me with getting groceries. It's going to help me buy new shoes, expensive shoes apparently. And, and so you hold out your hand and I open my hand and out drops a $100 bill. And you're, you're what? You're disappointed. You're like, man, that, that's so disappointing. I thought I was getting $1,000. I got 10% of that. I got $100. That's so pathetic. But let's suppose you had no expectations of any kind. And out of my hand drops a $100 bill free for you to have. You're like, hey, let's go out to eat. You know, like that's, that's great. What a little bonus you gave me. That's really nice. I appreciate that. It would seem like a blessing. See, it's when I expect certain things and then those expectations fail that then I'm disappointed. Right? Anybody that's been married, you learned this within your first year of marriage, right? <laughs> that you had, you had expectations you weren't even aware of. Like the, I, I had expectations I didn't even realize I had until they weren't met. And then it was like, oh, I guess I was expecting something and didn't realize, you know. And this, this is the problem with, um, with facing persecution is that we sometimes think, well, that's strange. I'm doing what's right and why, why am I being bothered? Why am I being ridiculed? I remember a guy who hated me uh, at, at the job because I told him the gospel and he was like, do you think therefore that I'm going to hell? And I was like, oh gosh, why is he asking it so directly like that? You know, And I was like probably 19 or 20 at the time. And he's like, do you think I'm going to hell? And I said, well, I don't think you're going to heaven right now, but I want you to. I'm telling you, you don't have to go to hell. Like I'm trying to find a way of letting him know my news is good news of, of salvation. It's not just condemnation here. But it didn't matter what I said or how I said it because at that point he hated me. Hated me. Like I thought I needed like to quickly leave work and get into my car, you know, and not see him in the parking lot. Well, anyhow, you know, you, you might think this is strange. Well, I was sharing my faith. I was sharing Jesus with people and then they got mad at me or I got, a, I got you know, written up or something over it. It's not strange. Don't think it's strange. I remember one time we were street witnessing, just walking around handing out tracts with the youth ministry, and we were doing this over at uh, Seal Beach um, 2nd Street, isn't it 2nd Street? Main Street? I always get the two mixed up in my head for some reason. Main Street. And we're over there and we're handing out tracts, and there's a lot of bars there, and after a certain hour, the businesses close, and pretty much the only places people are hanging out is the bars, or they're inside the restaurants eating. So at that point, we're like, all right. Time for us to go, you know, there's because I've learned over time that witnessing to drunk people is good for practice, <laughs> but it's not very practical. Like they don't remember it the next day, so it didn't really have a whole lot of an impact, typically speaking. I mean, the Lord leads you to do it, of course. But so we're there and I'm sharing with this guy, and he's like standing there, he's like, Yeah, man, da, da, da. I was a Christian and my life just and my life got worse. And I I I was a Christian and it just made everything worse. And I said, Well, Jesus didn't come to make your life more comfortable on earth. He came to get you out of hell and eternally into heaven. And he went, wait, 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 say that again, say that again. 
say it, and he made me say it again. So I told him again. I used different words just to make sure that I got the point across. You know, I explained that that Jesus didn't come to make our lives more easy on this earth, but to give us eternal life so we'd be forgiven of our sins and we'd have eternity in the presence of God. And he was like, I'm not, I'm not even exaggerating. I, I, just, I promise. He goes, no one ever told me that. <laughs> and, he, and he's like moving around and he's got his beard in his hand. He's gesturing with it and stuff. And I just started laughing because I thought it was hilarious, you know, and he was, and he started laughing too, which I'm not sure why he was laughing, but he was drunk, so... I don't know if he remembered this later, but my thought was this. Why didn't anyone ever tell you that? Or, or, and I don't want to be uncharitable towards whatever church he went to, if he went to a church even. Because maybe they did and it just, it just, it just went in one ear and out the other. Maybe he was told and didn't listen. I don't know. But, but now you know. <laughs> like, right? Like, my life may get a lot worse because I follow Jesus. But my eternal life will most certainly more than make up for that. You know, not not worthy to be compared. That's how our current trials are called a light and, and little thing, a small thing compared to what will be revealed, the glory of God in, in us for all eternity. And so don't think it's strange. Peter wants them to be ready for persecution. Jesus did this too. In John 13 and 14, we've been studying in the youth ministry, these, these passages, and Jesus is getting them ready for pain. And he's like worried about them. And he goes, hey, you know, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in me. Believe in, you believe in God, believe in me. And he's preparing them for the difficulties that are about to come their way. They were not ready for it. Even standing there looking at Jesus, they were not ready for it. Even though they said with their mouths, like Peter, I'm ready, I'll die for you. But then when he sees Jesus getting crucified, his faith falls apart. Because it failed his expectations. And so I can think I'm strong and I can think I'm, do- I'm doing well, but the problem with trials is that they try me. And that's what he says, right? Don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try or test you. It's going to test you in the same sense that like a quality control person tests the product to see, you know, is it, is it going to hold up under pressure? Will it hold up under constant use? As a believer, will I hold up under difficulty or persecution or hardship in my life? And trials, they reveal what's deep inside of us. That just, it comes out. And I think a lot of us find that we're actually weaker than we thought we were. I know that has certainly been my experience in trials. I'm like, well, I thought I was a lot stronger than that. I thought I was a lot more stalwart than that. But it turns out that, that sometimes I've been like, Peter, oh, I would do this for you. I would do this. And I'm like, oh, but I didn't know it would be feeling like this at the time, you know. And that, that tends to be the way it goes. So God's trying to get us ready for this. So Hebrews, um, well, okay, Peter wants them ready for trials. Jesus wants us ready for trials. But Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, the hall of faith, it's all about this type of thing. Facing trials, but pressing on anyways. Going, I'm not going to do this because I know that in the end, when I give, God will give me more money back in return. In the end, when I suffer persecution, I will end up with more you know, of whatever it was that, I, that I'm losing, I'll end up with better at the end. Like, oh, I got beat up and I was crippled and now I can't walk, but, but soon I'll be running marathons because God will heal me. And I'll, I don't, I mean, God may do that. He may do that. But I don't want to create an expectation that all of our payback is in this life. That's the expectation we don't want to have. Oh, there's more than enough payback. I mean, God's going to bless us. But it's not in this life. And that's what Hebrews is about. Let me read to you this. By faith, Moses... When he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, which would have been a prestigious place. He's, he's rich and famous. 
choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. That is so supposed to be my attitude, you know? That's Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 26. 11, 24 through 26. And that is so supposed to be my attitude, right? I am looking at trials going, you know what? Worth it. I'm looking at the choices between the son of Pharaoh's daughter and associated with the slaves. The, the, the lowly people, the untouchables. I'm looking at rich and famous versus poor and marginalized. And he's like, poor and marginalized. I mean, it, he made a choice. And he chose to suffer the affliction of Christ with God's people than to be in the palaces of kings with all of that glory. So... Um, just to have this attitude and to not think it's strange, to know that in America, it's the anomaly. It's, it's the odd anomaly that someone could say, run for president, stand there and say, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, and get applause from the crowd and not have things thrown at them. This is, uh, over the course of the history of the world, this has not been the norm. You know? So we don't want to think it's strange when I'm facing these fiery trials. And that, of course, is the nature of the trial. I like how it's described as fiery. It's, it's fire, it's, it's heat, it burns. And this, I think, is in the sense of it purifies. You know, it burns away the dross, so to speak. It, it, it cleanses out, like the, like the smelter who, who heats up the precious metal and it raises the impurities to the top and he wipes them off. And he heats it up again and he does it again and again. And every time I'm going through these trials, I come out more ready next for the next one. You know, I come out a stronger believer in Jesus and someone who has a greater spiritual strength. Whatever the cause of a trial, no matter what's the reason for it, whether it's something that I caused for myself or if it's just persecution because I'm serving Jesus, whatever the cause, I know this, the trial is a purifying thing in my life. So whether I brought it on through my own failures or if somebody else's maybe pulled it into my life, I am going to be purified through this and I can rejoice in that. I can look forward to that. I don't have to be like, well, it wasn't my fault. I'm still going to, even if it was my fault, I'm like, well, what, what brought me here was my mistakes, but... That's what I'm going to learn about now as I'm going through this difficult thing. Trials purify. I like um, how Paul's thorn in his flesh, again, is a great example of this because he wasn't doing anything wrong, but he was experiencing a trial so he wouldn't do anything wrong. It's really interesting. He talks about how he, lest I be exalted above measure, a thorn in the flesh and a messenger of Satan was sent to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. He repeats himself. So he's saying that it was because of, it was to keep him from having pride. That Paul's thorn in his flesh, whatever this thing was, it was to keep him from being arrogant and having too much pride. Because this is, if there is one sin that seems to be worse than the rest, I think pride is, is definitely in the running for winning that contest. It's, it's pride. And pride in a spiritual leader is a, a horrific thing. It'll undermine their ministry. It'll, it'll, it'll lead the people who follow their teachings or their guidance astray. You know, because they'll, they'll copy the same things. And it will end up causing them to not see their own issues until they're too late. You know, fear, a godly fear causes me to see a spiritual problem in my life and make a big deal about it. But pride causes me to minimize it and not even care. So Paul has this thorn in his flesh. And then that thing, even though it wasn't something he would have because he was doing something wrong, it was actually to keep him humble. But God was using it to, to, to purify 
But then you have another example in Psalm 119, verse 67. This verse jumped out to me when I was reading Psalm 119, which I recommend doing occasionally. Psalm 119 is an awesome, awesome psalm. Verse 67 says this. Think of these words. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. <laughs> like, truer words, right? Like, he's just like, I was just, I was doing things. I was doing what I wanted to do. I was going astray. I was not keeping God's word. I was not following him. But then I started feeling pain. And I was like, oh, you know, okay, I'm coming back. I'm going to do what you said, Lord. Uh, pain has a way of waking me up. Pain sometimes is, was it some people say pain is God's megaphone? You know, it speaks very loudly to my life. And it certainly does. So trials purify. That's the nature of trials. Whether they're brought on by my sins or brought on simply by me serving the Lord. And it's a natural consequence of me serving God. They bring purification. It's a fiery trial. You can ask, why is this trial happening? Of course, that's good. it's good to ask the question. Just don't assume you'll, get, you'll find the answer because we don't always. But what we always should ask in a trial is, what am I learning from this? What am I learning from this? I remember having somebody who I was serving a ministry with that... I was personally having a real struggle with, um, just a personal conflict, you know, and I wanted to be, uh, I'm not going to pretend that it was, I was innocent and perfect and they were just like the evil ones and, you know, they're like the Judas in my midst. They never, they certainly were not this, but I was having a personal battle, you know, in my heart about this issue and this person. And there were some things that were doing that I felt wounded and hurt over and stuff like that. And then I got, I got advice from someone. I talked to a pastor I talked to occasionally just for counsel and for sort of one-on-one -on -one, like accountability and stuff. And he tell he looks at me and he goes, Mike, you need this person in your life. And I was like, I hate when he does this. <laughs> Cause I know he's right, but I don't like it because it's like, now I'm not, now you're telling me don't focus on their faults, focus on what you can learn through this experience. And I'm like, yeah, those are really godly words. I should do that. And it just helped me to go, yes, okay, Lord, there's a reason for this. You have a plan and you have a purpose for this situation in my life. Even if it was my failure or not that brought it, you want to use this to purify me. And I'm going to trust you in that and say, okay, how can I grow? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? How can I learn and grow spiritually through this? Perhaps the lesson is simply wait on the Lord and he will renew your strength. Maybe that's the whole lesson. Maybe the lesson isn't this like complicated intellectual truth. Maybe it's just you're learning patience. Maybe it is. Just maybe. I'll tell you. I will give you the answer in about three years from now. I'll give you the answer. <laughs> then you won't need it. So even if you don't know why, it still benefits you. Um, then verse 13, he says this. After telling them not to freak out about the trial, that it is though some strange thing happened, it says rejoice. Instead of worrying or thinking it's strange, instead I'm to rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you, all, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So I partake of Christ's sufferings. I mean, that's of all the things that jump out at me in this verse, that might be the first one, having sort of a theological way of thinking. I'm partaking of Christ's sufferings, and it reminds me of a discussion I have with a Catholic friend of mine, still a friend of mine. Um, Colossians 124 is what he quoted. I'll read it to you. And he says, and it's based on this thought, that there are, um, there are things lacking in the sufferings of Jesus. This Jesus did not suffer quite enough to pay for all of our sins. Um, this is how he presented it to me. I'm not saying that this is, this isn't the best way to present the Catholic teaching on it. This is just the conversation we had. And 
And uh, when we suffer, we're sort of adding to that so that we can kind of help our own salvation along. So I want to tackle that, that subject. Now, here's the verse he quoted, Colossians 1.24. Now, or I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, Paul writing to the Colossians, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, this is, again, that same sort of theology, weird way of making theology, where I give you the doctrine ahead of time, and, and I use certain words, and then I read the verse that has those words in it, and it gets you to go, wow, okay, I guess that doctrine. But this verse doesn't actually teach that doctrine, that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough, da-da-da. Um, actually, I think what's happening here is it's just referencing persecution. And let me explain. So keep Colossians 124 in mind. And if you would, turn over to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Where did Paul get this idea that he was suffering the afflictions of Christ? Well, I think he got it from the first time he met Jesus that we're aware of. Acts chapter 9. Then Saul, verse 1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So that if he found any who were of the way, those would be Christians, they were called the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Lord, or who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he is, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. Now, Jesus had already died, resurrected, spent 40 days, and then ascended. And he was, he was with the Father, seated at the right hand. So how is Saul persecuting Jesus? Because when you persecute a believer, you persecute Christ because you're attacking his very body. So you're attacking Jesus. Now, Saul, now uh, Saul later becomes Paul, and he writes that he's suffering the afflictions of Christ. Well, he's being attacked. He's being persecuted. So he was the one attacking, persecuting Christ. Now he's being attacked, and that's the afflictions of Christ. We're not talking about the salvation work of Jesus. We're talking about the afflictions of Jesus or persecution coming to someone who's a Christian. Jesus put it this way, Matthew 25, verse 40. He said, and the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So that when I'm persecuted for my faith, they are attacking Jesus, which is another, one, another reason why I can go, you know what? I'm not going to strike back or attack back because this is between you and Jesus. And it's not really between me and them. So, the Colossians 124 passage has to do with this. The lacking in the afflictions of Christ just means that there's more suffering the body is going to go through, and he's continuing to do that, and he was doing it on behalf of the Colossians. Why? Because he's ministering to them while he's suffering persecutions. But it's not about salvation, it's just about ministry in general. And that's the same thing in verse 13 of 1 Peter 4. So back to our power main passage today. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings so persecution that when his glory is revealed you may be glad also be glad with exceeding joy so we're to rejoice rejoice the bible's so extreme here it never tells us to be okay with it or to just reconcile your heart with it but it actually tells us to rejoice to actually rejoice 
Now, we aren't really told to rejoice about pain itself, and I'm very glad for this because that's weird. We're told to rejoice in trials. We're told to rejoice about a trial, about a certain you know, result of it or a certain fact in this. And so in other words, we're, I think an honest way to put it is we're told to look at the silver lining. Look at the bright side of this. Hey, at least you're being persecuted for Christ. Hey, at least the gospel's going out. Hey, at least God's doing a work in your life through this scenario. And we really are told to be optimists as Christians. But realistic optimists, not where we make stuff up. I can't stand that kind of vapid optimism where I just make something up to make myself feel good about what's going on. I want like real silver lining. <laughs> but then we're told to emphasize that and enjoy that. And, that's, and there's good reason to. It's eternal. It's eternal. So we rejoice in trials. Um, they're growing pains. I'm growing. That's one of the reasons to rejoice in the trials. I remember being a kid. I was small for my age, or at least I think I was. It's difficult to tell because I had skipped a grade in grade school. So I was with kids a year older than me. So I was like very small compared to them. And I remember feeling bad pains in my legs when I was for growing pains. You know, when you're growing, you feel that. But I'm not kidding. I remember being a kid. And it was like such a big deal to me, the growing pains. And I'd be laying in bed and I'm sitting there. I'm thinking, it's worth it. It's worth it. I'm not kidding. I was like, it's worth it if I'm growing, man. It's worth it. I'm, uh. And it was, like, it was like some profound thing to me at the time. You know, I'm like, it's worth it. I'm going through this pain, but I'm growing. But even though I'm experiencing trials in this life or suffering, I'm spiritually growing. And it's an eternal spiritual benefit for a temporary physical or emotional pain that I'm going through. So it's totally, it's totally worth it. Because at the time, I needed to grow. Okay? I was getting picked on. It was not very pleasant. And I was like, I need to get bigger. All right? Um, well, in the same sense, and maybe even that much more, I spiritually need to grow. Like, Lord, don't leave me where I am. Take me deeper. Take me higher. Take me further into Christ, into abiding in Jesus and bearing fruit. And for that, he's like, all right. Well, there's growing pains. So I'm also to rejoice, it says, to the extent, in verse 13. So I'm not rejoicing, period, in trials. But to the extent that I partake of Christ's sufferings, I'm only to rejoice in this context if it's because it's a, I'm suffering for Christ. I'm not to blow up any event in my life into persecution. Oh, well, that was just persecution. It wasn't because I always show up late to work and I don't do a very good job. It was because of persecution. Because I shared. I shared Jesus. For three hours the other day when I was supposed to be doing paperwork, it was like, this isn't persecution. Like, you just got fired because you're bad. A great example is Acts chapter 5, right? And if you would turn to Acts chapter 5, let's look at it together. As sometimes happens, um, they're, they're preaching Christ and there's trouble that's caused. Like, it causes noise. It makes noise in the, in the, in the city that they're in. And so then people come down on them. And who do they come down on? The Christians that are preaching Christ. It's, it's like the person who, um, you know, if, if I went over to Saudi Arabia and I started handing out tracts and then they came and hacked me apart with machetes because of me handing out gospel tracts in Saudi Arabia, people would be like, well, that was stupid. You should have known better. And I'm like, or maybe it was mass murderers that, you know, I mean, maybe it was them that had a problem. You know, yes, I know better than to do that, but I know better not because um, it's my fault that someone's murderous. You just get the point. It's like it's not the Christian's fault that someone hates Christ and Christianity so much that they'll be violent. We shouldn't blame them. But that's what happens here. In Acts chapter 5, verse 40, it says, And they agreed with him. And this is uh, Gamaliel. He says, hey, let's 
let's just try and shut them down without actually killing them. And, um, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, crying and complaining about how they weren't expecting to face trials and persecutions in the name of Christ. No, wait, that was, no, that was the prosperity preaching version. Here it is. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Nowadays, people be like, well, you should know better. You should know better than to do that. You know they're, they're not going to like that. They're going to respond with violence. And I will rejoice that I be counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake. Some people would say that the disciples' method was wrong. Well, well, disciples, you just have to be a little more subtle. You have to be more culturally sensitive. And then people will be more receptive to you. Um, Some people would say, well, well, what do you expect from the world? As if expect is the fact that we could expect this from the world makes it okay. (laughs) So... What do you expect from the world? They're just not ready for the gospel yet. You know, you have to pad the gospel more with more, more good deeds. Like disciples, if you had started a homeless food ministry and done that for about 15 or 20 years, and then you shared the gospel, that would have been better. That would have been better. Some people would say they had to be more culturally sensitive. Oh, you just don't know their culture. You need to get their, understand their culture better. But instead, here's the disciples example to us. They rejoiced, said, woohoo, and kept doing exactly the same thing. Preaching the gospel, said, Lord, thank you that we're counted worthy to suffer shame for your name, and we're going to go for it. Because there was something of Christ in them, and that's what the world was responding to. The thing that I have to cover up to completely eradicate all persecution is Jesus. It's Jesus. That's what I would have to cover up. And there's certainly no way we're going to do that. Um, No way. No way. And I want to be sensitive to the world. I want to be thoughtful to the world. I want to be loving to the world. And for all those reasons, I'm going to share Jesus whether they like it or not. Until they like it. <laughs> Hopefully. God willing, I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. We actually had a letter that circulated here in Bellflower to all of the pastors who would go to the Bellflower school board and, um, and, uh, and open in prayer. Because before the school board meetings, they have like a moment of prayer, right? And they said... Hey, pastors, as you come up um, and do your, your, your opening prayer, we just want to make a request that you don't pray in Jesus' name. I'm not even kidding. This is, this is the letter we got. This is the letter we got. Now, at that point, there were two reactions, two major opposite reactions that I saw. One pastor was like, okay, well, I guess we won't do that then. You know, we, we want to be sensitive to their needs. And, I, and I'm like, I think I am sensitive to their needs, which is why now I have to pray in Jesus' name. You know, before I might have, I might have forgotten, <laughs> but now I have to, because you're going to put the gauntlet, you're going to draw the line, you're going to do that. And I'm going to be like, well, then what do I have to do? Like them without ceasing daily in the temple, in public, in the very place where they get busted for it the first time. And in every house, they do not cease teaching and preaching what Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the savior of the world. They just will not stop. They will not stop. And if the world has a problem with that, then the problem is that the world has a problem with that. That's the problem, and, and we, we want to continue just being believers and sharing the truth. 
So they were enjoying the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ, as it talks about in Philippians 3.10, this, this concept of fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. And, um, and so that's why they counted themselves uh, as blessed, as blessed. We were kind of worthy to suffer for him because the world saw something of Christ in the disciples and that was what they re- were reacting to. So that's the point. The point is that I do not need to change the message. I do not need to change my methods if I'm doing, if I'm preaching the truth in love, period, that's it. I don't need to do a 12-year study on the culture of East, like Los Angeles, Bellflower, 90805, 90280, whatever the area code, where I 706, there you go. <laughs> 706. Sorry, I'm like remembering every place I've ever been. But I just don't need to do all this. Like I just need to just be a Christian. Just be a Christian. And I, I think um, a humble boldness is is better equipment than a lot of research when it comes to um, sharing the gospel. Um, so they were persecuted. This 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 pushed them to stand their ground and just keep going. And it just encourages me that we should know the difference between kindness and political correctness. I want to be kind. I don't give a hoot about political correctness, nor do I want to violate it just for the sake of violating it. Like I just I just want to share Christ, you know. So then verse 14 says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he's blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Now this is reminiscent of Jesus's own words that he shared in the Beatitudes. This is the part of the Beatitudes nobody remembers. I don't know why, but we always forget this part. But let me give you the very last Beatitude that is always left off of the list. He said, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're in good company if that's what happens, you know, as you're sharing Christ. So that's one reason why we're blessed. Reward. There is a reward. Now, I want you to imagine... If a five-year-old walks up to you and says, hey, uh, will you help me carry my, uh, my, my doll upstairs? And you go, yeah, sure. And they go, okay, when you do, though, I'm going to give you a reward, something really good. And so you, you walk the doll upstairs, you help carry the doll upstairs, and then, and then you're like, okay, I'm ready for my reward. And you're thinking, like, what am I going to get? Like, here's a shiny penny, you know, like a piece of chocolate maybe. But it's nice because it comes with the appreciation of a five-year-old, and that's cute, you know. <laughs> so, so that's nice. But now suppose that your reward is from one of your parents. And they say, you know what? You've been doing so well in such and such thing. I just want to give you an, a reward. I want to reward you. Then you'd be like, ooh, this might be something actually nice. Something actually worth, worth having and you know, not, not just going, oh, cute. You know? Now imagine if you were going to get a reward from Bill Gates. And Bill Gates calls you and says, you know, I've heard about what you've been doing. I'm really, I'm really into that. I like that a lot. I'd like to give you a, something of a reward. And you're just thinking like, I mean, if this guy drops $10,000 on the ground, like he has to think like, is it, wait, hold on. I think I wait, I make more money on the way down to get the $10,000 than I'd actually get by, okay, I'm just going to keep walking. You know what I mean? Like, like this, you know, so you're thinking like, what's he going to award me? He's like, I'm giving you Catalina. I don't know. <laughs> so he gives you an island or something like that. So imagine this when Jesus says, rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. God has said, I want to reward you for this. Now, I would never ask for it, but he's told us clearly that this is what he intends. And that's kind of exciting. I don't deserve it. 
But if he wants to offer that and give that to us, that's pretty exciting to think like, Lord, what would God award us or reward us with? Like, I don't know what it'd be, but great is your reward in heaven, he says. So if he thinks it's great, then I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So that's one of the reasons why I rejoice in trials, because for the, for the pain, there's a greater pleasure that's coming. But the other thing it says in verse 14 is that blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And I find that to be a really interesting phrase. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And this might be one of the reasons why the world's persecuting you is because there's something of the darkness hating the light. And the more I'm being, I'm, it's not that I'm being brash or rude. It's just that I'm being a believer and shining the truth of Christ. And so the world responds with hatred to that because it's light, because darkness hates the light. And you can think of an example of this being Sodom. When the angels come and they're, they're messengers from God and they're angels of light, and they show up and Sodom comes out in numbers to attack these guys. In numbers to attack them and assault them. And you're like, why do they respond so viciously to this, this moment? You know, And it has to do with the light. I think that this is, this is the reaction that we get. And we see the, the, this happen all the time. When the gospel goes into a certain neighborhood, there's something where the, the government comes against it. And you're like, why? Like they're just feeding people or giving people jobs or doing something really good. And, and they're so hateful of it. I think it's darkness hating the light. And so in that sense, God's, God's spirit and glory are resting upon you. And that's what the world's reacting to is that. Let me give you an example. In, uh, in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, we get to chapter 8 and Samuel's kind of hanging up the hat. He's like getting older and he's not going to be, he's one of the judges of Israel. And he was one of the great judges of Israel. He did a fantastic job, like the opposite of um, uh, Samson who just blew it royally and is a, is, is a really good, bad example in the Bible uh, for us to learn what not to do. Um, even the worst of us can just serve as bad examples, right? Everyone can serve. <laughs> um, so Samson is the bad example. Samuel's a really great example of, of one of the judges. But as he's getting up in age, they tell him, Samuel, you're getting, you're getting older. Um, we don't want another judge. We want a king. Give us a king. We don't want to be under this judge's system anymore. Give us a king. And Samuel gets personally hurt. He's hurt because he feels like he's being rejected. But check this out. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 6. It says, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. Now Samuel's feeling hurt, personally hurt, because they're reacting to him, or so he thinks. But the reaction to him is actually a reaction to who? God. And so often when I'm sharing and someone gets upset with me, don't take it personally. This isn't about you and them. This is about them and the Lord. I get people all the time on my videos on YouTube. They make comments. I've, I've been, I mean, I hope you die in a fire if you ever come over to where we live, you're going to get it. And I'm in threatened and stuff like that. Like I routinely delete comments that I feel like are just way over the top, way over the top. Today I have one. I couldn't even repeat. I couldn't even finish reading it. I was like, Ew, that's so disgusting. Like, boop. <laughs> I can't really leave that on there, you know? Um, and you're like, I mean, I, I, I've seen my own videos. I've seen my own teaching. And like, I'm not hateful. I'm not angry. I, I really do. Gen I'm being genuine and all this other stuff. So why is there such a hateful response to this? And when you're sharing and there's this, this reaction, it's, it's not a reaction to you. It's to the Lord. And I think you could just chalk it up to that. Lord, this isn't about me and them. This is about them and you. It's about them and you. So I'm going to rejoice because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon me. 
and that when I would share and they'd react to you, I'll take that as a compliment. I must be doing something right <laughs> then if, if it's bringing that out. Because like Jesus uh, has showed, showed us, woe to you when all men speak well of you. That this is, this is like, oh no, you don't want to. You don't want to be the, the most loved pastor on the planet. Because it's pretty much guaranteed that you're not preaching the truth <laughs> at that point. Because woe to you when all men speak well of you. Also, there's another sense in which the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. And I think it's this, in the sense of a relational closeness that we experience with God, especially when we're being persecuted. I think Stephen is a great example of this. Stephen is the first martyr, the first example of great persecution in the church, right? They stone him. They killed him. And what, what does he see as he's dying? He sees Jesus standing, a vision of Christ, standing to receive him. Uh, this deep closeness with God, even while he's going through persecution. And there have been countless stories of saints who've gone through horrible persecutions talking about how close they felt to the Lord during that time. Just countless stories of, of persecuted believers going, oh, like I, I've heard of these believers saying, yeah, we, we pray for you, you in America. We pray for you because it wasn't until we were persecuted that we felt this deep closeness with God. And there's something about the Lord kind of coming in and, I don't know, just wrapping his arms around us at those difficult times. And there's like the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. Then it says, on their part, he's blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. So when you're sharing, do not be disturbed if in response to you preaching, someone blasphemes God. Because even while they blaspheme God, just by your very presence, being, an, being a Christian and speaking truth, you're glorifying God. God's not, it's not as though his throne is crumbling. As though the world is, is, is somehow tearing heaven down with their words. Really, you're there. Look past what they're doing and just continue to share the truth of God and share the truth of Christ. So that as believers, we can sort of be unmoved. You know, unmoved by the times when people attack us. Because one of the difficulties when you start sharing your faith more and more is that you get personally offended and upset at the things people are saying. And so sometimes we have to try to look past that and go like, Lord, no matter what they say, you're being glorified at this moment. So that I can kind of continue to share in a gracious and loving attitude. Um, because the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. And if I get all up in my anger and then it becomes personal, all of a sudden I'm an ambassador for me instead of for him. And then I end up doing things wrong. And then I walk away and I'm like, yeah, I wish I hadn't handled it quite like that. Um, I let the flesh get in there and I gave a mixed message instead of just the truth of God. It was like the truth of God and the attitude of Mike. You know, I don't really want to... Preferably not do that um, any more than I already have. <laughs> but on their part, he's blaspheming. But on your part, he is glorified. I think in this, if I can kind of summarize, one major lesson we're learning from this whole section in First Peter is that we have to unlearn that thing we learned in grade school and especially in junior high, which is that the most terrifying thing on the earth is the disapproval of our peers. The most terrifying thing on the earth is the disapproval of our peers. Maybe I don't care so much if those older than me do or if those younger than me do, but man, if the people my age don't like me, that's the worst ever. I've got to stop because the fear of man, the Bible says, brings a snare and it traps me, right? But those who trust in the Lord will be safe. And so I want to just put my trust in him and not worry about that. If they don't like me, okay, but I know who I am and I know who I'm serving and I know what I'm doing. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just not even going to worry about it. Nor am I going to get bitter and mad and, and not like them back or something. I don't care. <laughs> just don't worry about it. Just like water off a duck's back, as the old saying goes. 
So you might think I'm kind of harping on this topic, but I, I and I am, <laughs> but I'm doing it for a good reason because the Bible absolutely harps on this topic that we are in this world, but not of it, that we will go out into the world as lights, but that if they did this to Jesus, what will they do to us? And we must face persecution and be good soldiers for Christ, that all those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. And so that we will face these things. And that's why we're harping on it because the scripture harps on it. I want to, I want to sort of give equal attention to topics. If the Bible talks about this a lot, then I'm going to talk about that a lot. If it barely mentions it, then I'm probably going to barely mention it, you know. Um, but this is one of the big ones. So then um, let's go a little bit further. Verse 15. It says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a biddy, biddy, <laughs> a biddy body, <clears throat> excuse me, as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. So I'm not to be suffering, I, you know, claiming persecution. If I'm suffering as a murderer, literally murder, I don't think he even means generally as a hatred in your heart, being murdered in the heart. I think he means don't suffer as a murderer. Like if you're on trial for murder, you should be ashamed. Yeah, don't, don't, you know, you're not being suffer, suffering for Christ. But then it, it lightens up, right? And it goes to theft. Okay, don't suffer as a murderer. Check, got that. Don't suffer as a thief. Well... Well, you know, but theft is a really big deal. Recently, I've been noticing uh, grocery carts all over the place. I don't know why I've been noticing them. One was in the road the other day, so I like I like put it out of the road, and then I see another one in front of the church. Then I seen like two or three more just today. We were talking about it, and I was like, "That's so wrong, man! Those businesses pay for those grocery carts, and people just steal them. That's messed up." And I'm like all upset about it. But um, but the, but according to scripture, theft is a very big big deal, and I want to help us realize this. I mean. Put it this way, it's one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. That's a pretty big deal that God put that in there. But I want you to imagine for a second a society where literally no single person in the entire society ever stole anything. What would that society be like? How different would our country be if nobody's ever stole? Ever. There would be no locks. I wouldn't need locks on my door. I wouldn't need an alarm on my car. Um, I wouldn't really need any of those things. I wouldn't be paying nearly as much money wherever I shop. Because every business has to raise their prices to have a uh, recovering, uh, whatever they call it, um, um, something lost, whatever they call it, the, for the loss prevention stuff. But they have to raise the rates of everything that we buy. We all pay out the nose for the people who steal things. And every business has to raise their prices because of that. Because if someone steals something that costs the business $300, well, they have to have $300 of profit just to break even on that item. So there'll be lower prices. There will be no security guards. So there'll be, they would be out of jobs. <laughs> but they simply wouldn't be necessary because security guards are not there to stop violent fights from breaking out at Walmart. That's going to happen either way. What they're there for is to stop theft or uh, it's loss prevention. That's what they're called, loss prevention. The cameras, the security guards, and we pay through our, you know, the extra prices on items. We pay for all those, th all of those things. So the guy that steals and says, well, this doesn't hurt anybody. He's wrong. He just hurts everybody. He just spreads it out through the whole society. We all have to pay for it. There would be no savings accounts. You could just leave your money laying around. Nobody would take it if there was no theft. There'd be no passwords. 
are you kidding? Do you know how many passwords I've got? On how many different websites and how many different things? I don't even know how to get into my computer if the fingerprint thing doesn't work anymore. I'm just like, oh man, I'm in trouble. Yeah. There would just be such a totally different society if there wasn't theft. And it would be better in every way. It really would be better in every way. And the thing is, it's never been easier to steal than it is right now. Because of the modern technology, it's easier than ever to steal things. To cheat on taxes, to cheat in business, to steal things online. Um, I wonder if somebody combed over your finances or my finances, would they find that we cheated? Would they look in your records and say, oh, you didn't pay for this? Oh, you didn't, you didn't give the taxes in this area or that area. And so we're not to suffer as a thief, the scripture says. And then it goes on. The next one is even more generic than that. It says not to suffer as an evildoer. So let none of us suffer as a murderer, thief, or an evildoer. And this is a very generic sense, just evildoer, one who does evil. You know, that's pretty much what it is. Um, so let this not happen. It, let me read to you Ephesians 5, verses 3 and 4. It's along these lines. It says, but fornication... And all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. That there's like a sense of dignity in the body of Christ. Like you're the people of God. Oh, don't let anyone be naming you, one of you, as someone who would do one of these things. That's terrible. That's, oh, yuck. And so we're not to suffer as an evildoer, someone who does evil. As Christians, you might say, well... Shouldn't we be really big on grace? I was like, we are, we are huge on grace. Man, I am, grace is huge. It is ginormous, right? But I'm also really hard on sin. And I think every Christian should be both of these things. Huge on grace and hard on sin. Because if I'm not really hard on sin, then grace isn't really huge, is it? If sin's not that big of a thing, then grace isn't very big either. The smaller sin appears, the smaller grace becomes. And if it's amazing grace, then it's despicable sin. So I should treat sin not as a small thing, as a huge thing. But some people just uh, haven't maybe quite understood this because we live in a culture and live in a world that treats sin like it's no big deal. But I want to treat evil doing in general as, as evil doing evil. That's what <laughs> That was doing evil. That's what that was. And the last one, <laughs> it's so interesting how it highlights this. Murderer, thief, evildoer, or busybody. What's a busybody exactly? Well, the term there is also translated sometimes as a meddler. <laughs> a meddler? I, I, I think of the Scooby-Doo cartoon for some reason. <laughs> I'll get you kids and your dog, your meddling dog. But this, uh, this word, the term means someone who acts like a supervisor when they haven't been hired to be a supervisor. That's the term. Isn't that interesting? That's the, 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 that's the busybody. I'm acting like a supervisor when I have not been hired to be one. And I think we have to apply this to our online life as well. Beware the temptation to become the meddler. The meddler. Um, the book of Proverbs talks about gossip as tasty trifles. Like they're, mmm, like, mmm. Ooh. Hey, did you hear about so-and-so? No, I didn't. Tell me. No, 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 no. And we're... <laughs> We're gobbling down these, these gossipy things and I'm sort of becoming the meddler as I'm you know, meddling and, and the busybody. And the busybody, the nature of the busybody is they're not actually accomplishing a whole lot. You know, they're, they're not actually helping people necessarily. They're just sort of running around and sticking their nose in people's businesses and trying to gather information about people. And I've actually had instances where I, I read online about this pastor who's, who fell and I'm like, 
I'm, 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 I read the headline, you know, and it's like, Pastor So-and-so fell, and I'm like, I don't even want to read it. Because I'm just, look, it's not even part of my circle of guys I know. It's not going to affect my ministry. It's none of my business. It's just none of my business. And it's just good to guard our hearts. And, you know, those shows that are basically gossip shows, we should be good to guard our hearts from those things. I mean, the Bible's really, really comes down on this more than I even would. God does. He really comes down on that sort of thing. So it'd be good for us to avoid that. We have to really police and guard ourselves because we live in a culture that sort of feeds this uh, this kind of gossipy thing. And, and maybe, and I give you permission, call me out. If you see me do that, please let me know because I want to grow as, as well. Um, and I've noticed this too, that some people who are busybodies, they're busy. I'm, oh, I'm going to help you. I'm going to fix this. Get it, get it, and they're kind of sticking their fingers in a bunch of places uninvited. Uninvited is kind of the key there. They're sometimes about policing or helping other people's issues as a way of avoiding their own. And sometimes they've got some real serious issues going on that they're just ignoring. And that this um, sort of my, my conscience, my soul's telling me like, oh, I need to deal with this. I need to fix this. So I run out and I get it, become a busybody in other people's issues. And then I feel better about me. And is this not why some of the really lame TV shows have actually survived? It's because people watch them to feel better about their own lives. You know, they become that busybody. Then oh, I feel better about me after I watch those nut bars over there doing their thing and talking to stuff. But that's why um, I love this. And this is as a, as a pastor, I remind myself of this because it's in a pastoral passage, the pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul tells Timothy this, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Lest we only save those who hear us and not ourselves. We need to take heed to ourselves and to the doctrine and continue in them, walk in obedience to Christ. Because in my obedience to Jesus, that will amplify the impact I have on others a thousand times. Because a Christian who follows Jesus will have more power with two words than the hypocrite does with many paragraphs. Um, and so I, I just, I don't want to be that, that busybody. Now, Check this out. It doesn't say, let none of you suffer because he committed murder, committed theft, committed evil, or meddled in other people's affairs. Rather, he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, or as a busybody. Because what we do becomes who we are. I like how Ray Comfort approaches people on the street and he says, have you ever stolen anything? And they say, yes. And he goes, how many times have you stolen things? You know, I don't know, many times. Okay, what does that make you? A stealer. No. A thief. You know, it makes you a thief. And sometimes people get that wrong. It makes you a thief because it becomes the noun, right? The action, the verb becomes the noun. The things I do become the who I am. So that if I'm if I'm stealing things, I'm not just someone who steals things. I'm a thief. If I'm into the gossipy stuff, I'm not just into gossip. I'm the busybody. If I'm doing the evil, I'm the evildoer. And God's concerned about our character and who we are. It's not just like, don't do that, I don't like that. It's, it really changes who we, the very person of who we are. And maybe this is part of the reason, on a side note, part of the reason why hell is an eternal thing. Because you're not just being punished for what you did. It's also the place for a person like you. It's the who you are. Like, this is where you belong. The, the you that is the wicked, evil, the noun that you've become because of your verbs, this is where you go. And I also don't think that in hell people stop sinning as if, you know, they, they get compartmentalized into hell and they're like, well, now I'm just going to be holy. And they're like, why am I still suffering? I've just been holy this whole time. I think it's just constant sin for the rest of the rest of time. 
And so then there's a place for that constant experience. So let's not kid ourselves about our suffering. Um, I knew a guy who quit a job because, um, I don't know, I think he had some issues and he just quit his job, but he blamed his poverty on persecution because he said that on the job they played secular music and he couldn't handle it anymore. And I was like, dude, I didn't know how to say it. I wanted to be like, you're poor because you just quit your job for no reason. And now you have no good reference because you told off your boss and decided to get all high and mighty about it. That's your fault. Like, I don't know what to tell him, you know? I, I was bummed for him, but it wasn't persecution. But persecution is real. And if I am facing this, then I should not be ashamed. In fact, I should glorify God. I should be quite pleased in the Lord. Because what God is doing in my life and what God is doing through my life and God's being glorified. This is literally what God wants. Rejoice when you're persecuted. And it's what the disciples did in the book of Acts. It's just God has harped on this subject for us. And I think it's, a, it's for a time and for a reason. Because we're now in a country where if you really want to be scot-free, you're going to have to not represent Christ very well. I want to preach the, preach the truth of Christ and just go for, go for glorifying and honoring God and let the chips fall where they may. And if I take hits, I'm just going to take my hits. I'm just going to take my hits. And I will seek to glorify the Lord. And I hope at that moment that I will just continue steady on in my trust in the Lord, regardless of what happens. Yeah. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, uh, your truth and your word. And this incredible encouragement, Lord, to glory in these things, to rejoice to the extent at which we suffer persecution for Christ. So no matter what comes next, may we remember this word. And may we take to heart that you're doing a work in us that's eternal and that your glory and spirit rest upon us at that time. And that there is a great reward, great reward from a great God. And we pray, Lord, that we'd have boldness and we'd speak the truth of Jesus Christ wherever we can and that you'd guide us and lead us in that. In Jesus' name, amen.